Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing Chapter 14, Bullvanger Lights, Chapter 15, The Demon Cages, Chapter 16, The Silver Guillotine, and Chapter 17, The Witches. So in chapter 14, while the Egyptians are traveling north, they're attacked by a group of Samoyeds and Lyra is kidnapped. She makes up the name Lizzie Brooks and is taken to Bullvanger. While there, a man who reminds Lyra of a scholar asks if her demon is settled or not, and Pan quickly changes shape to answer. The man takes Lyra inside and gives her over to the care of a nurse, Sister Clara, who seems deeply uninterested in Lyra and how she came to be there. Lyra is forced to clean and change into different clothes, but does manage to keep a hold of the alethiometer by pretending that it is a toy. The man who brought her in originally comes back to ask her some questions. Lyra gives her ages 11 and lies about why she's in the North. She insists that the Samoyeds attacked and that she had been kidnapped, but the man tries to convince her that she was imagining things. Lyra is then taken to a room with other children. The kids talk for a while and seem to know more than the adults would want them to. They tell Lyra that they think the adults are measuring dust, that Mrs. Coulter caught most of them, and that they measure your demon and do experiments at the station. They also say that Mrs. Coulter will be there the day after tomorrow. Uh, Chapter 15. The next day, Lyra finds Roger, as well as Billy Costa. She talks to them a bit during lunch, and Roger points out that the ceiling tiles lift up and you can hide up there. Lyra puts together that you could also move around up there unseen. A man comes in and tells the children that there is going to be a fire alarm that afternoon and then takes Lyra and some other girls away for testing. They take some pictures of Lyra, presumably in the same way as the pictures Lord Asriel showed uh, back at the beginning, and weigh her and Pantaliman separately. Lyra straight up asks the man why they cut people's demons away. He, of course, lies and wants to know where she has heard such a thing. The fire alarm happens and everyone heads outside. Lyra immediately starts a snowball fight amongst the children and gets Roger and Billy to sneak off during the confusion. They find an outer building with big keep out signs on it and then Kaisa appears. He tells Lyra that the Egyptians are on their way but are still a day's journey away. Kaisa helps Lyra break into the forbidden building using magic and they find all the demons that have been cut away from the children. The ones that haven't died anyways. Kaisa frees the demons and says he will try to reunite them with their humans. Lyra goes back to the kids and tells Billy and Roger to start spreading the word of escape, just as a Zeppelin lands and Mrs. Coulter disembarks. With the Darth Vader music playing, (laughs) at least in my head. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if you have a villain getting off of a ship, you better have some epic music. Mm -hmm. For, For real, yeah. 
In chapter 16, later that evening, Lyra sneaks into the ceiling and goes to listen in on Mrs. Coulter talking to the employees of the station. She gets there just as they're talking about how the demons could have escaped. Mrs. Coulter brings up that it could have been one of the children that let them out, but no one has any idea how that could have happened. Mrs. Coulter also asks them about the new separator, and Lyra listens even though the subject causes her physical distress. The employees talk about how separating the child and demon used to be so stressful for the adults performing the separation, and how so many of them had to go on stress leave, but this new way is so clean and quick the child can even be conscious for it. They put the child in one mesh cage, the demon in another, and bring down a blade made of a special alloy, and they are separated. Mrs. Coulter says that she'd like to see it, but not until the next day. After she leaves, the employees talk about how intense she is and how she enjoys watching the intercision happen. Lyra is so disturbed by this that she makes a noise, and the men find her. She puts up a big fight, but goes limp when one of them grabs Pantalaimon with his bare hands. It was as if an alien hand had reached right inside where no hand had a right to be, and wrenched at something deep and precious. Lyra and Pan stare at one another, but seem incapable of fighting back against this. The men decide to keep her quiet by putting her in the guillotine right then. Pan and Lyra fight back, but are still put into the separate cages. Just as things look dire, Mrs. Coulter comes in, realizes who Lyra is, and pulls her out of there. Chapter 17. Lyra and Pan are clinging to one another and sobbing as Mrs. Coulter brings them to her room. Eventually, Mrs. Coulter asks Lyra how she came to be here, and Lyra tells her a long story peppered with just enough facts to sound plausible. She then asks Mrs. Coulter why these experiments are being done. Mrs. Coulter says that dust is something evil and wrong, and that adults are covered in it, but that children are not, and by performing a little cut, they can make sure that children are never covered in it. Lyra asks if it's so good why Mrs. Coulter stopped it from happening to her, uh, but Mrs. Coulter doesn't really answer. It comes out that the nurses at the station are severed and are still with their demons, and Mrs. Coulter lies and says they do not take the demons away from the children, they just change their relationship. Very soon, Mrs. Coulter asks about the alethiometer, and Lyra pretends it is in the pocket with the tin holding the spy fly thingy. Uh, when the fly is released, Lyra runs out in the confusion and pulls the fire alarm. Lyra finds Roger, and they get all the kids in their outdoor gear and make their way out. They're very quickly faced with the Tartar guards and their wolf demons. There's a big battle, witches appear, and so does Yorick, and the kids run away and start walking through the cold, following Yorick's footprints towards where the Egyptians must be. Eventually, they're all reunited just as Mrs. Coulter catches up with some Tartars and steals Lyra back. But then there are more, more witches appear, and Yorick gets there again, and Lee in his balloon. Lyra and Roger get into the balloon, and then Yorick does also, and some of the witches start pulling them towards Fallbard. Lyra briefly meets Serafina Pecola, but Serafina says they will talk after Lyra gets some sleep. Close call. Close call to actually talking to Serafina, which I think has been Lyra's secret desire for chapters now. <laughs> Ever since she ran around with the, the cloud pine. Yeah. It's like, how do you do that? Because I jumped up and down about 50 times and nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, these, these chapters were really, really good. I loved the battle there at the end. And uh, like how it's, you know, it like does this three act structure thing that battles do that are like so wonderful when when it's done this way where, you know, it, like everything is hopeless and the witches come in at the last minute and then, you know, it all seems like, oh, good, we're we're free. And then, no, Mrs. Coulter is there and then the dark moment and it seems like all is lost and then whoosh, 
you know, she gets whisked away and it's uh, that all that stuff is just so good. It's like, they just blow through it so easily and it's really well written. It's clear what's happening. It's not confusing. So I just loved the whole battle and escape. Except I think there are parts of it that are a little confusing, but they're supposed to be right. Like towards the end when like everything is just like snowy and a chaotic mess. Mm hmm. Yeah, you're like in her perspective and she's like, who's here? Who's grabbing me? What's going on? Oh, no. Yeah. I do think Philip Pullman a lot of the time toes a very fine line in that because he likes to uh, to write the confusion of it all, especially from Lyra's perspective. But there does come a point where as a reader, you need to know what's going on. In, yeah. in this battle, I think it works. But there are other times when I'm like, I don't I do not know what has happened here. Yeah. <laughs> And so basically the the three act structure that you're talking about it's kind of like there's two big momentum changes right where like you think the bad guys are winning and then you think the good guys are winning yeah and then the bad guys come in at the end well or no it's almost even like four momentum changes like two big ones that take a lot of time and then two quick ones at the end in succession yeah, it's kind of like that dark moment and then like a day, denouement and, yeah. you know, like the kids come out and and Lyra's like, yeah, we're getting out of here. And then she like realizes, oh, we're kids. They're soldiers like this won't work. Yeah. But then, Snowball you know, fight. at the last second, it like it turns around because they get reinforcements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really good. It's really well paced. Um, and I think. Like I said, it's easy to follow. You know, this is for YA readers. I think kids could follow everything that's happening and and be only as confused as Lyra is at any given moment. Yeah. And I think it's just set up so well from the earlier chapters with Lyra's life in Oxford. So you you believe that Lyra could suddenly, within a day, have all these kids following her and doing mm-hmm. exactly what she tells them to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point that all of that world building back from Jordan College is really setting up her as a leader and mm-hmm. and as someone who would have the confidence to like take children into battle because she's literally been play acting this her whole life. Yeah. Yep. Teleology. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what we should have named this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh so Kate, what was your favorite part? Uh my favorite part is the whole bit where Lyra gets taken by the men and put into the guillotine. Not like my favorite for what's happening. <laughs> Obviously, I wasn't like eager to see her and Pan separated forever. <laughs> but just the way it's written and the way that the the touching of the demon taboo that was mentioned earlier sort of comes to its fruition here. What's that thing? Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's demon here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and we see that people just this that Lyra had this conviction earlier that people don't do that because it is taboo and it is wrong. And then meeting these people and finding out, oh no, people people do do this. I've just never met anyone evil before. Right. Yeah. Like you you find out what the uh you basically find out the reasoning behind the taboo. Yeah. And like why and, it developed. Yeah. And the the language that Pullman used was so very visceral about it like reading it kind of makes me feel uncomfortable when they when they grab pan which is perfect yeah yeah it's it's really good and i just love that whole bit and even then when mrs coulter comes in at the end 
and saves her. And you immediately know that Mrs. Coulter understands that what they're doing is wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, because she saves her daughter from it. And that's just a really good bit there, like of character and plot and that sort of thing. And and you also get this minute, this bit with Mrs. Coulter caring about Lyra. Like you understand that if there's one person alive that Mrs. Coulter protects, it's Lyra. And, and that's a really interesting moment. It's so good. It's like all upside down because she's like yeah. happy to see her and happy to be pulled out. And but at the same time, she's like in Darth Vader's clutches. She's this is the worst yeah. place she could be. I didn't even realize when you made that Darth Vader reference before, but it's like such an apt comparison because she's Luke's father. I mean, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just love that whole bit. It It's so good. And it sets up so much more that happens later on, as well as like being the fruition of a lot that's come before it. So it's that's why it's my favorite. And that's a really good lead in to my favorite part, which is kind of like everything that comes after that when... um. Yeah, Lyra and Mrs. Coulter are uh, doing their little like lie off with each other. Um, so good. I really like the way that <laughs> Philip Pullman um, sets them uh, like you know in like a battle of wits and deception against each mm-hmm. other, and like the way the language that he used to describe Lyra like coming up with her her story was so good. I even so I pulled the quote. With every second that went past, with every sentence she spoke, she felt a little strength flowing back. And now that she was doing something difficult and familiar and never quite predictable, namely lying, she felt a sort of mastery again. The same sense of complexity and control that the alethiometer gave her. She had to be careful not to say anything obviously impossible. She had to be vague in some places and invent plausible details in others. She had to be an artist, in short. She had to be a writer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I really hope we remember this bit because I know that there's bits later where both Lyra and Mrs. Coulter feel that again. And I and uh, just their their character development from this here going forward is so good. Sorry. Carry on. Yeah. I just I like the way that they're kind of like reflecting off of each other as like both people who are uh, creatively lying to get what they want and both of them will say anything to achieve their ends but one of them is completely evil and one of them is not yeah and this is like this scene right here is like such a postmodern thing where like both people know that each of them is lying to each other like everyone knows that none of this is true and they're just both participating in it as if it is true yeah like like they completely ironic they have to both pretend that um that they believe the other one even though they mm-hmm. don't really think that they're being believed because they have to they're both just like waiting for their moment to make their move do you think and then Mrs. and sorry i was just gonna say and then and then lyra does make her move with the spy bot tin and it's so good <laughs> i was gonna ask do you think mrs coulter does not believe lyra's story i think she's I think skeptical she... at least yeah. Yeah, I don't think that maybe I'm overstating it, but I I think she doesn't trust her, you know. Like all these details probably aren't the real story. But she has no idea where she's been. Cuz if she did, right, she would have got her. But I just feel like they both know that like, oh, we're having a lying duel here. 
I mean, given I, given that Mrs. Coulter knew that Lyra had the alethiometer and lied about it, and they like had that big confrontation right before she disappeared. Yeah. But that was just the alethiometer. And remember, Mrs. Coulter doesn't know Lyra can read it and doesn't, I don't think she believes that Lyra really knows anything about what's going on. That's like, true. I think she's underestimated Lyra a lot. That's I, fair. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter because it's very quickly shown to Mrs. Coulter that she has lost all trust that Lyra had in her. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't really matter. I was just curious what everyone thought. I think you're right. I think you could find textual support for both readings. I, I guess I like to make the point because I think Lyra won that lie-off. Oh, oh, I definitely agree. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think you're right that she wins it partly because Mrs. Coulter underestimates her. Yeah. and Or overestimates herself, however you want to think. Like she's got, oh, I've got this handled. Yeah. It's funny, though, that like Lyra gets strength from lying. She's like, oh, okay. I almost just died. Like the worst thing that could have happened almost happened, but now I'm cool because I'm telling my mother lies. Like, yeah, <laughs> back on familiar ground. It's so good though. That's great. It's a, it's just weird because, like, you know, for a novel that's aimed at young adults and kids, this is like, I mean, in, like, lying is bad. You know, like it's considered immoral. She's lying to her mother. And there's no doubt in your mind when you're reading it, like, this is a good thing to do. It's not just smart. Like, it's capital G good to Mm -hmm. fool her and, like, try to get out of this situation. So even, you know, doing all it's very complicated, but it's so easy to follow and and so crunchy simultaneously. It's some really good writing. It is very interesting. And let's just specify that your your favorite part was the battle, which we already talked about, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because I don't think we said it was your favorite part when we were talking about it. Oh, you just sorry. started talking and we couldn't stop you. <laughs> that was Did our you... favorite part section, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Did you want to say anything else about the battle? No, I, I just really liked the, you know, the structure and all that stuff. I thought it was good. Did we come across any problematic things that we wanted to talk about? Is the Samoyed thing racist? <clears throat> I just assume that they're like um, well, it's Siberian a... types or something. It's a breed of dog. All I'm getting is he does dogs. He does use the word Asiatic face. Mm-hmm. It's at least a little bit uncomfortable. Like it gave me pause. So Google tells me that the Samoyeds are the people native to Siberia, right? Or the indigenous people of Siberia. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that is. It doesn't say if that's what they call themselves or if that's what is just come out of like the Russian language. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. And sometimes when they say that, like there's Tartar people and all that, I'm like, I wonder if that means that like maybe the Mongol empire didn't collapse in quite the same way, you know, like if maybe it just held together better and for longer and that there's more of like a unified, maybe like Russia is not, the Russia we know and like all of this is kind of culturally one thing or something. It's just hard to know what's going on outside of Europe in this world because he doesn't have the time to like sketch all that out. Yeah. The way they say it doesn't sound like it's problematic within the world. Whether or not it translates to problematic for us, I'm honestly unsure Uh, just because I haven't, I haven't personally come across a lot of these terms before. Yeah. Yeah, I, 
I just take their like the when he says Tartars or like the names of the people groups to be like Europeans othering people and kind of like, oh, those people, you know, who are less sophisticated than us and like typical mm-hmm. Eurocentric attitudes that are like not they're not good, but like are authentic to who these people are. Yeah, I mean, we don't get a lot of insight into who they are, like, as people or as a cultural group. They seem really bad. They see, I mean, yeah, so, like, they seem kind of, like, bad and savage and stereotypical. Wait, sorry, which way. ones are we, are, are we talking about the Samoyeds or the Tartars? Like, the people the, who kidnapped her and they the were, Samoyeds, like. The Samoyeds, yeah. Okay, so that. And they're basically the, the only non-white people depicted in the book so far. So like that's, that's not great, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was because I was gonna say with the Tartars, I'm all we really know about them is that they might be almost at war with the Magisterium. I I don't know. Right. It I was does gonna, seem I was that gonna way. say England, but it's not really a country. It's the Magisterium. Right. Um, uh, so we don't really know because that was talked about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But also now we see them and they're being employed by the magisterium. Yeah, I was going to say it's, you know, it's not like they're just off kidnapping kids to like do whatever they want with them. It's like the white people are paying us to kidnap white kids like big shrug, you know, yeah. like as far as these people go, like these people came into our land and they're like, hey, if you see any little kids that look like us, please pick them up. And they're like, sure, whatever. So it's like the badness flows from the magisterium, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, but if they're like that easily manipulated, I don't know. It's yeah. not a good portrayal. I, I'm I'm saying the Samoyeds definitely problematic. I, I was talking about the Tartars in particular. Oh, there, sorry. Though, because sorry. that's that they've um because all we've heard about so far is that there's political unrest and there might be war, but now we see them being employed by at least by this arm of the magisterium, the general ablation board. So it seems like there might be more going on there or that maybe the magisterium has decided that they want to concentrate in other directions and don't care about going to war with the Tartars. Or maybe they're just employing them for now, but planning to murder them all later. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah, that would be typical colonialism. Right yeah, there. Uh, but I didn't really pick up on anything else other than like obviously the plot stuff that is supposed to be problematic. Yeah, mad scientist and a mad scientist. Yeah. <laughs> Although a part of me is like, could you just tell me if the demons do weigh differently when they're in their different forms? I'm super <laughs> curious. Like <laughs> conservation of mass. I doubt it. Right. I don't think so. <sighs> I want to know, though. <laughs> Why why aren't people studying this more in a less evil way? It's so <laughs> weird and interesting. How is how isn't everyone studying this in a less evil way? I'm not saying let's let's kill people. I'm saying let's study demons cuz they're interesting. Anyways, or maybe they all weigh Oh, I was going to make a joke about what is it that Egyptian god your heart has to weigh lighter than to get into the good place. I don't know. Anyways. No, no, no. We know words. this because this is an American Gods. <laughs> Alan, <laughs> do you want to take it away? This is our uh, wheelhouse. That's Anubis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's Anubis. Weighs your heart after you die. Yeah, he weighs it against a feather. That would be interesting if you, yeah, if they put a scale and it was a feather on one side and like, okay, yeah. turn into an elephant. Yeah. Huh, weird. <laughs> 
No, we do get confirmation that demons can produce heat in this chapter set, though. I thought that, too, when I listened. (laughs) was like, oh, there's Caitlin's heat. Yeah. I just want to be employed in, like, the nice version of Bullfanger, where we study demons without murdering children and separating them from their souls, but still studying them and figuring out what the fuck is going on here. (sighs) Sounds like no fun. I don't know. What are the perks? (laughs) It's even the point. Also, I don't know if you would have to be at the North Pole if you weren't, you know, cutting them to bits. That's true. <laughs> it's like the worst Santa Claus place. Yeah. That's because it's in Russia. Santa's on the Canada side, obviously. Oh, it's like shots fired at our Russian fans. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, I'm joking. <laughs> All right. Uh, Anya, did you want to come in and correct idiot Caitlin? Uh, you mean redeem myself from not doing the work last time we recorded? Sure. Because uh, I have done some reading about the Aurora phenomena uh, for this week, which confirmed a lot of the things that I was thinking last week, but was not sure enough uh, to say into the microphone. So you had a lot of the basics right, um, but there were some subtle things that were a little bit off. Look, yay for basics. Yeah. (laughs) I am a basic science understander. So the aurora comes from uh, the combination of two different things. Um, The Earth's magnetic field and the solar wind and how they interact. Um, So Mm -hmm. solar Mm -hmm. wind is um, charged particles that are emitted from the sun and they're uh, electrons, protons, and alpha particles, um, which alpha particles are basically just like helium, but missing its electrons. So it's it has two protons and two neutrons together, uh, which is like the nucleus of helium. Um, anyway, so these charged particles get ejected from the sun and um, there's like some cycles. They come, the strength comes and goes. I don't really want to get into that. Okay, so then the magnetic field of the Earth So not all planets have intrinsic magnetic fields, um, but most of the ones in our solar system do. So in our solar system, only Venus and Mars do not. Um, But like Mercury, Earth, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, all um, have these intrinsic magnetic fields. And it comes from um, convection currents that are in the molten core or the liquid core of the planet and um and that uh the whatever is is making this current has an electric charge so the earth has molten iron inside of it and um the earth's rotation means that that iron is like flowing and moving and and has these currents and that's what generates this magnetic field around the earth okay interesting so last time you said that the magnetic field is thinner at the poles. I would like to specify that I said for lack of a better term. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. So I'm going to take my stab at some better terms. I think um, the the magnetic fields, right, it has like a shape and a direction to it. And so it's it's more that it's like oriented differently and kind of less far away at the poles. If that makes sense, right? So, like, if you imagine... I mean, otherwise known as thinner, but whatever, carry on. (laughs) 
Well, <laughs> uh, I guess. But so I'm, I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> right. So if you, in like the classic diagram, right? It's like if you took a, how to explain this? Um, it's like the globe of the earth is wearing two hats and the poles is where the hats meet. Sure. Yeah. Right. So there's that like, I don't know. You it's know, like if you like if you it's like if you took a loop. Right. And the the loop joins at the north and the south pole. Right. And then it's like and it extends away from the earth around um, the equator. If you took a line from the South Pole and you took it away from the Earth and then connected it back at the North Pole. Um, I like my hat metaphor. Or <laughs> some hats. Well, <laughs> so the the solar wind actually, for lack of a better term, is like blowing such that um, the magnetic field is much smaller on the day side of the Earth than it is on the away dark side of the earth um on the dark side of the earth it's actually like a tail stretching out like you imagine you know when you're like standing in front of a fan and your hair is like blowing back behind you and you're all majestic that's like the earth's <laughs> magnetic fields gets kind of like blown back by the solar wind okay um, right so the the thickness of the magnetic fields depends both on like uh, your latitude, like whether you're at the equator or at the pole, and whether you're on the sun side of the Earth or on the dark side of the Earth. So on the day side of the Earth, the magnetic field is located about um, 65 to 90,000 kilometers away. Uh, and so that's like way outside of where the atmosphere is. So all of these charged particles hit that magnetic field and then they get um, kind of like, you know, bounced before they can reach the atmosphere of the Earth and then they get directed along the magnetic field to the poles. And then... Oh. So last time when we said you couldn't see it in the day, it had nothing to do with the light. It's just not even there. Well, at, l at lower latitudes, it's not there because okay. it's getting... Um, bounced away before it can hit the atmosphere. Okay. But yeah, also it, yeah, th that is also true though. Uh, the phenomena totally occurs during the day. It's just that you can't see it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, sorry. And so on the on the far side of the Earth, the magnetic field actually stretch out stretches out for six million kilometers, as opposed to sixty thousand kilometers. So it's like a hundred times. Holy crap. Longer, right. Pretty crazy. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So if it's six million kilometers out on the night side, mm -hmm. that changes then as the the Earth rotates. Well, the ma the Earth rotates in kind of inside of the magnetic field. Oh, gotcha. Carry on. Yeah. I was imagining. Yep. Carry on. Gotcha. I'm there. Um. Right. So, I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> And so just like uh, the magnetic fields of the Earth, you know, like it tugs on your compass needle and it points it towards the poles. It takes these charged particles and points them towards the poles and kind of like shoots them over there. Um, and then so as it gets towards the poles, the magnetic field directs it 
down closer to the Earth and where these charged particles can start interacting with the atmosphere. Um, oh, okay, okay. And so just to give you um, like a little bit of a idea for where this is happening and in the atmosphere um, and in terms of like space. So again, like at its, at the equator, the magnetic field is uh, like 65 to 90,000 kilometers um, out. The atmosphere strictly ends at about 10,000 kilometers out. So about um, a sixth of that distance. Right. The International Space Station is at about 400 kilometers out. So technically still in our atmosphere, like the thinnest, oh, uh, least dense layer of the atmosphere. Yeah, I actually didn't either before I started looking into this. Um, that seems so close. Yeah. <laughs> In the grand scheme like of they things, could like, just jump home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so um, the auroras occur at anywhere between 80 to 650 kilometers altitude. Um, and so they actually can be occurring where the International Space Station is orbiting. Can they see it oh. from there? I don't know, actually. Yeah. If, Weird. Okay. Could they see it if it was below them? I, yeah, I do you think want me to try is... and look it up right now? <laughs> I know. I feel like maybe I've seen. I think I have seen pictures from the ISS of the Aurora. I'm pretty sure if that's true. And I think that the ISS is in the atmosphere like that so that it can uh, avoid bolides. Like could, that way they're burning up in the atmosphere or skipping. If, if it was like further out, then mm-hmm. it wouldn't have protection from like tiny meteorites, you know, that would puncture the the walls constantly oh yeah that makes total sense i just hadn't thought about it i think of it as being so far away but in the grand scheme of things that's like super close yeah uh well and so and the iss is pretty close right like most satellites are much farther out yeah but we do think think of the iss as being in space so because it's this international space space station station. yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) right so aurora's occur over a broad range of altitudes. And so that's one of the reasons why they come in different colors. See what, okay, I'm fully into being wrong, obviously, but what I had read was that the different colors are from the different, not altitudes, but um elements. Like some of the particles hitting us are oxygen and those go one color and some are helium or whatever and those go another color. So you're completely correct. Oh, okay, um, cool. the, so, yeah, I was going to kind of get there. Then I'm glad I interrupted you <laughs> to show how smart I was. <laughs> so the, di- the different colors do come from uh, different elements and sometimes like different electrons within the same element or different processes happening within the same element. The, the color of light, right, is determined by its wavelength. Mm-hmm. And so um, the main way that the colors are emitted is when an electron gets excited from one energy state into a higher energy state and then comes back down. And so the wavelength is determined by the difference in energy between those two states. And so that will vary depending on which element is being excited. But it does depend on altitude because the composition of the atmosphere changes depending on altitude like the balance of 
um, oxygen and nitrogen is different at different uh, heights. Right, gotcha. And so most of the aurora phenomena that we see are due to either oxygen or nitrogen, since those are the two elements that make up most of our atmosphere. Basically, oxygen tends to emit green light when it's lower, and then you only really absorb the red uh, side of oxygen when it's at much higher altitudes. Mm. Um, it has to that do with sense. like the different. Well, it has to do with the different time scales of how the the light is emitted and and like the uh, density of of elements. And I didn't quite fully understand it, but. Well, uh, I only made it, it makes sense because when you see the pictures of it, they look like curtains and the high part is like reddish and then it gets greener the lower it goes. So like mm-hmm. that's the only reason I say it made more sense because they're like, I, I don't know, the high ones are like more excited than the lower ones. So, yeah, it's always been interesting to me that like light particles are also waves and you see the auroras as like waves in the sky. Huh. Well, which I get that those two things don't really have anything to do with each other. Yes. <laughs> I, I, it's just always been interesting to me because that's yeah. like the only light that you do really get to see that way. Because you're seeing the magnetic field, right? Isn't that's basically what the aurora is? Um. Well, so kind the aurora of. is the charged. It's the charged particles hitting the atmosphere and they are being directed on their path by the magnetic field. You're not really seeing the magnetic field per se. I guess that's what I mean. Like is is like if you throw like baby powder on the invisible man, you'd be like, there he is. You know, like, (laughs) like you can see the magnetic field because of the particles is what I mean, I guess. I still am not quite sure if that's correct, but maybe. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Um, so the important part of this conversation is that Caitlin was mostly right. Yes. <laughs> oh, speaking of mostly right, you were also completely correct that it is very similar to how neon lights work. Uh, they're both powered uh, by collisions with charged particles uh, and gas molecules that then excite electrons in those gas molecules to higher energy levels that then emit light when they return back to their base level. So the only difference is what the source of the charged particles is. So mm-hmm. for neon lights, it just comes from an electric current versus the solar wind for the auroras, and then what the element is that's getting excited. Um, yes. Because for the auroras, it's either oxygen or nitrogen. And then for neon lights, obviously it's neon. Or there are like a lot of things that we call neon lights that are actually mercury lights or whatever, yeah. Yeah, 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 gotcha. Or they have, like, fancy coatings that... It's like a two-step emission process. But anyway, not important. And so I have one other bonus thing to share with you, which is that uh, after a conversation last week, I did some searching around, and I found a science project that I did in, I think, second grade, where I explain Aurora Borealis... What? Um, <laughs> I know it's almost like I didn't tell you about this before the show. Um, so <laughs> we can include that as bonus content um, if you want to stick around after uh, the end of the discussion and hear seven-year-old me uh, with my best friend 
explaining everything about the Auroras that you would ever want to know. <laughs> yeah, somehow I managed to both find the cassette tape and find an appropriate implement to play the cassette tape on. So I was very proud of myself. You know, that's the bit that really uh, impresses me, that you have something around you that can play cassette tapes. <laughs> I don't even know, like, you... I. <laughs> All right, so yeah, it we've listened to a bit of it at least, and it is very cute, and I do recommend that you all stick around. I'll put it in at the end. Did we have any other science stuff that happened in this chapter or in these chapters? I don't really think so. Uh, so last time you talked about two things, but I only had a chance to research one of them. Mm-hmm. So, but I I, I, like I don't think the- anything new came up really. Oh no, not really. The station is like it's very like a lab though. Like, I don't know how accurate it is in the way that, like, it's depicting, you know, like, I was just like, okay, I guess it's a, like a science place, but I don't know how accurate it is. Yeah, so that's one of the reasons I made sure to mention that that Lyra was reminded of the Jordan Scholars when she met the research dude, because I don't remember, but I don't think they ever call anybody, like, doctor or professor or anything, do they? Not mm-hmm. that I recall. If they did, it was only in that conversation with Mrs. Coulter, and I I just remember them using last names. And so I thought that was interesting that the word doctor in a uh, scholarly sense, at any rate, it might doesn't really seem to exist. Right. It's just a medical thing. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I felt like the descriptions of the labs weren't really detailed enough to... You know, when I was reading it, I was thinking of something you said, I think in the first episode, Anya, where you were saying, like, I think we are feeling the lack of, like, corporations in this world yeah Uh, and this felt really corporate to me like they have the picture of like a sandy beach when they're up in the arctic and it's like like a totally corporate thing to do oh you're so right there's like a hang in there poster somewhere around there with like (laughs) a demon hanging on a guillotine or something but it's more i mean it's kind of like cheesy corporate in the same way that, like, the government can be cheesy sometimes when it's, like, trying to be approachable and not just not caring. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, we, we totally care about you guys. Now get back to work. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. It, this is the most sciencey place I think we've seen in the whole, the whole thing. Like, we were at the college in the beginning, but you don't really see anything kind of, like, happening. But yeah. Yeah, I just, I really want to know the results of all those experiments. <laughs> They already did the evil. It wouldn't hurt to know. I just want to know the nature of demons, like the physical, scientific nature of them. But sadly, these books really only explore the philosophical. <sighs> or <laughs> I was just reading the word philosophical in our notes. I don't know if that's the word I actually mean. Nature of demons. And that bothers me. I want to know everything about them. It's funny. That used to be the word for science. I think when you get a science degree, you still get a philosophy of like a natural philosophy. Yeah, right? doctor. I mean, that's what a PhD is. It's a doctor of philosophy. That's what the PH stands for. Right. Yeah. 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 You're like a natural philosopher, right? Mm-hmm. That's like literally your degree. Yeah. As opposed to a supernatural philosopher, which would be like you like that's that is what that means. It it just means like you don't you don't know anything about ghosts and shit. Yeah, basically. It's like, not your thing. <laughs> well, and that's I mean, philosophy is the word that they use for science in the book. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I have in the religion section here, I plan to talk about like philosophy 
probably first, because um, I'm going to be talking about truth. Uh, finally, I probably should have been doing this the whole time. Honestly, like you could, I think you could read this book like thematically from like a philosophical religious angle, like I'm doing it and only talk about truth, like through each of these parts, because there's enough here. This is really what the book's about, I think, is truth. So like, you know, what is truth? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Uh. I agree with that, actually, about the truth thing. And that that proves true throughout the series. That yeah, yeah. True. Uh, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I have uh, an agenda with the way the things that I'm talking about. I'm, I'm building up to something that is not uh, what Pullman might be aiming at. Um, but that we'll find out later what I'm talking about. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so this time, uh, there's two kinds of, um, of philosophical truth that we need to understand. So first we have, uh, what's called a priori and the a there is kind of like, um, asymmetrical, which means like not symmetrical or amoral, which means like not moral. So a priori means, um, uh, you like, you have no, it's priori has like a prior in it. So this is like no prior experience of. So a priori truth is deductive. It's like mathematics uh, is a good example of it. Like two plus two is four. You didn't like ever see two and two walking down the street and then like hop into each other and turn into four. And then like, oh, I understand addition now. Like that doesn't happen. It's it's in your head. It's ideas. And a priori truth. That's how it works. It's um, intrinsic. To the terms, it it, uh, it doesn't need an experience or or an event for you to understand it, but it does require a mind to think it. Uh, so this is like pretty much purely mental knowledge, and this is really the knowledge that like philosophy is concerned with. Um, just stuff in your head, like uh, I think, therefore I am, is an a priori truth. It's right. an ontological truth, to be technical, as opposed to science, which does a posteriori knowledge uh, and that you get that a there again and posteriori is like posterior. So this means uh, that scientists have no, but they have no, buts. so like Einstein, no, but uh, Anya is a scientist. No, but uh, no, but. Butless. <laughs> no comment here. No, <laughs> no, that's not what it, that's not what it means. So a posteriori just means like um, it, it follows from, so you have to have an experience, uh, you know, you observe something happening and then, uh, you will build a framework around that. It's like, a uh, a pri- uh, a posteriori inductive knowledge is like phenomenon or principles that require no sentient mind. This is like gravity is going to happen whether we're here or not. Right. Stuff like that. I'm my mind is like going off in all the jokes we could have made about the no bud thing. So <laughs> ignore me. Trust me, it was like all I've been thinking about all day is every time I hear a posteriori, I laugh because I'm like basically 12. Um, so I'm, I'm not just like throwing out Latin terms for no good reason or to make funny jokes, although they are hilarious. Um, there, it's important that you like understand that there's kind of like mind truth and then there's like physical truth uh you know like gravity uh and stuff like that because of this idea of the correspondence principle and that that means that like mind truth a priori truth 
corresponds to a posteriori circumstances. So like in these chapters, for example, you would have uh, Lyra is not Lizzie Brooks, even though everyone at the station believes she is. They think that's true, but she's not because that was never her name. She just made it up. So we know that like it's not true that Lyra equals Lizzie Brooks. Uh, Lyra's Lyra. So her the idea of Lizzie Brooks, the a priori, uh, does not match the a posteriori of her identity, and therefore it's not true. If you can follow that reasoning, so it's correspondence. Does the knowledge fit the circumstances? So another one of these would be what you um, pointed out in the uh, summary about um, Mrs. Coulter saying that like severing is a good thing. And then Lyra's like, well, then why did you stop it from happening to me if it's such right. a good thing? Um, so she catches her in a uh, correspondence uh, like fallacy. Um, Mrs. Coulter has like failed to do the correspondence test. Her, her ideas do not match her actions. And so you can tell that she's lying. Uh, and that is like a very basic way that we uh, discern truth. This is like the oldest way of discerning truth. This goes back to like Plato and Socrates and all those Greek guys. It's basically um, like finding inconsistencies mm -hmm. or, or like pointing out places where things conflict. Right. Like if, it, if things are inconsistent or illogical, then that indicates to you that like it, this is untrue in some way. Another, an interesting thing about this, about the truth and being lied to and stuff, is that you can have a kind of scientific knowledge that truth is probably a real thing by you yourself lying and being lied to. Because like by the experience of that, you know that there is like a, a contrast, an opposite to these lies. There is the truth. So like the children in the... Uh, in the station, you know, the last time we saw them, they were all getting chocolate and writing letters to their mom and dad, and they loved Mrs. Coulter. And now when they talk about Mrs. Coulter coming, they're like, I'm scared of her. I don't like her. I don't like her demon. She's bad. She lies to us. So they have all checked uh, her actions against her behavior and words, and they have figured out that she is a liar. They have figured out that she is not true. And so they are able to come to the truth by way of experiencing lies. So this is another way that we can discover that the idea of truth is probably real. Interesting. It's I've weird. Never... It feels yeah. counterintuitive, but it's like one of those proofs that's like experience is the teacher in this case. Instead of just figuring it out mentally um, by both lying and being lied to, you can, by contrast, go, well, truth must be a real thing uh, if I can do not truth. I'd never really thought about truth as something to be thought of as real, if that makes any sort of sense. Well, if you ask people, you'll get a variety of answers. But I think most people will say, like, is, is there such a thing as truth? And people will be like, yeah, science. And it would be like, we could have a long it's <laughs> a long debate about uh, how how true that is, because like I I don't know what you think of this, Anya, but like the a posteriori thing is like um, the whole we've talked about science before, sometimes off mic. I can't remember if we've said it, this kind of thing on mic before, but like when I've said things about like, well, science 
finds the truth or it finds laws about the universe, you're like, eh, bah, 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 bah. like because like it's <laughs> well, like contingent on data and new information might change things. Yeah. And also part of that is probably that I'm a biologist. And so like variation is an inherent part of biology in a way that it's like much less so in chemistry and physics. And mm-hmm. and there's like so few universal rules in biology that's like one of the things that people are always kind of chasing after um you know it's like dna is how uh you know organisms encode their genetic information except rna viruses or you know (laughs) right like there's (laughs) there's just like always an exception to everything so i don't know like truth in biology i feel like is um is like a not really a useful concept. We think about um, like assembling evidence and making arguments. It's actually maybe more similar to like law <laughs> in some ways. I mean, except that it's, um, I mean, you are using like doing experiments and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, I don't know. No, I think that's a good analogy. And, and it's the basic contrast that you can make with, a posteriori knowledge is that that's the scientific kind is that it is contingent on something happening. So you have to observe DNA and RNA and stuff like that, and then build a framework out from that as opposed to a priori knowledge or like more philosophical knowledge, which is like, it's also contingent, but more on definitions. Like once you understand what the concept of two is and what the concept of addition is and what the concept of four is, there's like no mistaking that two plus two is four. Like you just understand what that is and it just simply is true and it won't change unless the definitions change. It's interesting how you worded some of that when you were saying about observation and stuff because of what we were talking about last time, that nothing is real or for another term true unless it is observed. Yes. You are, that's smart. You are skipping ahead to a different oh, episode. I see, I but, see, sorry. No, but that's good because <laughs> because it's the same thing as knowledge. I mean, uh, the same thing as what I just said about um, uh, a priori, like if the definitions change, then the truth changes. And what what you see in science is that those contingencies are actually resting on things that are themselves essentially unstable. And so when you like literally just a moment ago you were like i don't know if truth is real like yeah like <laughs> there's there's nothing really solid i was you gonna know? S- i'd like to say i didn't say i don't know if truth is real i said i didn't think of it as something to be real or unreal mm-hmm. so i think what i'm saying is i just didn't think about it at all like it's it wasn't something that plagued my mind the way it might plague the people who thought of all this stuff yeah well i think it comes from the, the all of the sciences, at least in Europe, growing out of a religious tradition, which does claim to have like unchanging truths at the uh, at the bedrock of it. Um, right. So like we're most familiar with like the Abrahamic traditions, you know, which would be like Christianity, Islam and uh, Judaism. And uh, and of course, those get their idea of truth uh, directly from God and uh, in the scriptures that they're based on like the Quran, the Bible, the Talmud and uh, well, not the Talmud, the Torah um, and things like that. So like, these are literally like 
the words of God, the truth is encoded in them. And, uh, you know, so that truth is unchanging. It's as true for Abraham as it was for us. And this like gives the universe and humanity a sense of continuity, a sense of like meaning and connection with the past and future and, you know, eternity and stuff. So that's like, I think when people talk about truth, I think that's the kind of truth that they might imagine, like something that never, ever changes, which is really like a religious idea. And then the more that those religions kind of evolved into educational institutions uh, in European history, the like philosophy, and then that changed into science. This idea of truth, it was like the more that you pick at that without having the Bible there, it's like, eh, this thing's real fuzzy. This thing's real changeable. And it's led to a lot of angst in the 20th century uh, and 21st century, because I think this could be a direction for the show to go in when you think about the fact that we live in a post-truth, post-facts kind of society. Oh, you think they're going to try and make some like really pointed commentary about fake news? I mean, I would. Not just fake news, but like just the idea that like truth is under the control of the people who are like distributing information. Like I said, you change the definitions, you change the truth. I mean, that's that is philosophy. That is postmodern philosophy. Um, And it's alarming to think about that. But that is like the nature of modern society. And so I think you could play around with that quite a bit. And the story already has this in it, I think that. There's a lot of lying and there's a lot of like deception going on in these chapters. And there's a lot of looking for the truth too, you know, but truth is not, I, I don't want to represent the truth as like this Eurocentric, Abrahamic centric kind of thing, because there are other traditions in the world. I haven't really talked about Eastern religions at all, I think in this podcast. And so I did want to say that like, um, for example, in Hinduism, the idea of truth is also kind of like eternal. But it's more like, um, you know, reincarnation is like an important part of Hinduism. And uh, you'll be like reincarnated as uh, another person. Like maybe you'll be rich in one life. You'll be poor in another life. Maybe you'll be a god or an animal. You know, who knows? But if in all of those different reincarnations, you're very clean or you always hate broccoli or something like that. Um, I'm trying to pick something that is has nothing to do with like you, who you are as like a moral person. Right. Um, you would say that like that has something to do with who you are intrinsically, right? Like if you're always clean, uh, even when you're a dog or a monkey or a god, it would be like, huh, there's something about you that needs to be like very, very clean. And that's like a, a truth that is revealed through reincarnation. And in Hinduism, the universe itself like is born, lives and dies and is reincarnated. And certain things about it are the same every time. And those in unchanging intrinsic aspects are like what the truth of the universe is in that religion. So, you know, that's kind of related to Abrahamic ideas in that, you know, truth is like unchanging, but it's not quite the same because it's like a thing that you can find out for yourself and that you can carry with you is revealed through your own actions instead of like in a book, uh, you know, that has been read over and over. Buddhism came out of Hinduism, uh, kind of the same way that Christianity came out of uh, Judaism and 
truth in that, this is kind of more scientific, a little bit more interesting. Um, in over and over and over, the Buddha says, like, you should do X, Y, Z, but don't take my word for it. Try it for yourself. And if it doesn't work for you, don't do it anymore and try something else. Whoa. But I think that it will work for you because I'm the Buddha. Um, I mean, he's the Buddha. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, right. But we, we didn't think you were claiming to be Buddha. <laughs> Secret, guys. I, it's coming out now. Uh, yeah. So, like, I think a lot of people don't know that about Buddhism, that there's a very... Um, a very much like try experiment for yourself and find the truth on your own, find what works for you and don't do things just because they're in the scripture and says to do them because that might not work for you. Um, Buddhism is really about finding out who you are on a, on like a deep level. And, and what this does in Buddhism, it leads to um, this thing called heterodoxy. You've probably heard of orthodoxy. Right. Uh, Yes. That means like one truth. And this is something that is a big, big problem in Christianity. And we've already talked about the Reformation and about how like Catholicism and uh, Lutheranism are like literally at war with each other and people are fighting against each other. In Buddhism, you will have people who fundamentally cannot agree. Like their views of Buddhism are literally incompatible and cannot exist like ontologically together. They just contradict each other. And the Buddhists say, yeah, that's cool. No problem. You do, you go do your Buddhist school. I'll go do mine. If I have any students who sound like they would be good at your school, I'll send them over to you and you send some over to me that go the other way. And there's no fighting over it because the Buddha said, do what works for you and everyone is different. So you get stuff is like Zen Buddhism all the way to like Mahayana Buddhism, which is like a full blown religion with like gods and praying and offerings and all of this kind of stuff. So it's like, it's extremely diverse, but it's not contentious because there's no idea of like one truth that we all agree on. It's whatever's true for you. Truth is personal. It's kind of subjective. I really like that from just a live in your life perspective. Yeah, you know? it's it's worked out uh, if you... <laughs> I mean, there have definitely been Buddhist wars and stuff like people who are like, you believe something different and I'm going to kill you, but not to the degree that like Islam, Christianity and, and stuff like that, you know, when they don't agree with each other, it's bad. Understatement of the century. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, not to mention the fact that Judaism has almost been wiped out. Yeah. Yeah, even even within, you know, like Israel has reconstituted itself as a nation, but it's like extremely secular and kind of tries to downplay its religious roots. And so, uh, yeah. I don't know if that's the direction that Israel's going in. Well, I mean, there are many forces. It's complicated. You're right. Yeah. I mean, the religious right wing is kind of ascended in Israel the same way it's ascended here in many ways. In terms of like grabbing political power and doing shitty things, yeah, for sure, and and and, and that's exactly the same thing that I'm saying. This oh. like we we have a monopoly on the truth, you know, and there's only one truth, and it's it's really that idea of there's one truth, right? Because like I just said with science, right, it's contingent, and if there's new evidence, then the truth shifts, and so 
But, you know, with this idea of like the truth has always been the truth, it it gives you problems the more that society changes. It really makes it difficult. So one more Eastern religion, just to really mess things up, is uh, Taoism, where there is no truth um, (laughs) because there's no such thing as truth. Uh, because there's this idea of like the Tao itself, which is like the fundamental like element of all of everything. Uh, it's not really God, but it's just like the, the principle of the universe. It's like the way of the universe, the way the universe is, is just constant change. So like, I guess you could say that's a truth that things are always changing. Kind of like what Anya said about biology. Um, you know, yin is always becoming yang, which is always becoming yin, which is always becoming yang, and it never stops. So you can't like nail down a truth. It just doesn't exist. And and that's kind of really like a postmodern view that happened thousands of years ago in China. Like they kind of solved all of the stuff that if you went to become like a philosophy doctorate these days, they're wrestling with right now in the 21st century. They're like, I don't know how to solve this problem. And it's like, uh, 2000 years ago in China, they did it. I, maybe read a book. I don't, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, yeah. It's worth it to say here that we, we do talk a lot about Christianity and not so much the other religions, but at least at this point in the book, that's what it has been focusing on. Yeah. 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 So, Oh yeah. I just wanted. That, yeah. It's not that we are specifically ignoring that there are other religions in the world. Yeah. I haven't really had a good reason to do it, but I just yeah. wanted to give like, some different views on what truth is um, because I do think that the book is shedding a light on this idea that there, that the truth is not the truth, right? Because you get this whole thing with like Mrs. Coulter assuming that dust is bad because that's what the church says. But then Asriel seems to be like, well, I've looked at the evidence. There's photographic evidence that the dust does this and that it's associated with this city in the sky or a palace in the sky, whatever it is. And I think that that indicates there are other worlds and I'm going to test my hypothesis. And Mrs. Coulter is like, I have a preconceived notion of what this information is and I'm going to act according to that preconceived notion and only, you know, like pay attention to evidence that confirms it and, and ignore evidence that contradicts it. Do you really think Mrs. Coulter feels that way? I mean, she is in charge of the faction that feels that way. <laughs> Right. Okay. Because I feel like Mrs. Coulter is Christian in the way that that we see a lot of. Uh, I was gonna say conservative, but that's that's Canadian. Uh, Republic politicians are very Christian in that they don't actually give a goddamn shit. You know, they just want their power and their money and control. And that's yeah. how I see Miss. She, you know, she she says whatever she needs to say to the church. She's like, "Yep, absolutely, you're right, and I want to prove you right as much as possible. Give me money and power and influence." And power. And that's, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah, she's cynically uh, Christian. And, you know, and that that whole thing of like, you know, coming into the situation with like your mind made up as opposed to like looking at the evidence. There's there's this famous, um, you know, like the we talked about the trolley problem one time. There's a, another kind of like hypothetical idea um, that is famous in um, philosophy of religion called the invisible gardener. Uh, it's this thing that um, a philosopher named uh, Anthony Flew came up with where like the so the idea of it is these two guys are hiking in the woods and they come upon a clearing and and there's like a perfectly laid out garden there, you know, like rows of vegetables. It's weeded, it's plowed and all of this stuff. And they're like, oh, wow. You know, one of them says that there must be a gardener 
around here somewhere who did this. And the other one's like, I, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, sure. Possible. And he says, well, how about we hang out until we find out who this gardener is? And so they like set up camp and they wait. Uh, and the gardener doesn't show up after a couple of days. There's no gardener. And so the one guy says to the other, he's like, I, I don't think there is anybody. I think just somehow it, they just look like a garden. You know, it's just a coincidence. He says, well, that's not possible. Maybe the, the gardener is invisible. Uh, and so they like try to set up traps to see if they can like, you know, catch the gardener in a net or if he's coming when they're not looking or something like that and nothing works. And they, they try to like measure him in different ways. And the one guy is like, well, he must be able to walk through traps and he must not be caught by infrared scanners and he must not uh, weigh anything when we put down like all these different ways that you try to catch the gardener are not working. And, and the other guy's going, I, I just don't think there's actually a gardener. And he's like, no, 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 there must be a gardener because there's a garden. So we, we you know, he's just invisible and undetectable and like what's the difference between an invisible undetectable gardener and no gardener at all and so this thought experiment is to illustrate trying to talk to a theist um, when they are stuck in their um, theistic view against uh, any kind of empirical evidence to the contrary you just can't talk them out of it they have all kinds of reasons why um, god doesn't reveal himself but does exist and is undetectable to humanity. And the argument is, uh, is like no good because it doesn't correspond to the way that I said earlier, like the evidence and the experience don't line up with each other. Um, and so you have good reason to doubt that it's true, that there is a God uh, who created everything, even though we can observe creation and go like, wow, this is all really impressive and works really well together. It seems like somebody made it, but there's not enough evidence beyond that that somebody... Uh, right. Interesting. So, like, one more thing. So, there's... Just like the trolley problem, there's other versions of this invisible gardener thing to try and illustrate... Basically, to try and argue with it and be like, you don't understand what religion is. And I agree with some of these. But um, one of them is really interesting because it's not uh, trying to um, defend religion or defend atheism instead it points out like an actual problem in the invisible gardener scenario um, by this guy named rm Hare. so in his version of the invisible gardener he says these same two guys are in college and they're walking around the college campus and the one guy is saying all of my professors are trying to assassinate <laughs> Okay. And the other guy is like, I don't think they're trying to assassinate you. I mean, like, I've felt that way in college for some time. <laughs> I'm offended he, on behalf of <laughs> academia. <laughs> and he, he says, well, you know, I go into class and they're watching me and I can see they're like getting stuff out of their desk. And he's like, that, you know, that doesn't prove anything. And he's yeah, but... They do this. They're watching me from the windows. And when, when I go to my room, they're keeping a record of when I leave and when I come in. So they're, you know, getting down my schedule and just all of this stuff. Like he has all of this like different kind of paranoid evidence. And no matter what his friend says, he just cannot convince him that his teachers are not trying to kill him. And the point of his thing is that it has nothing to do with being religious, that you can just be stuck in uh, like a, a belief that 
is impervious to reason. And that does not inherently have to be religious. Um, he calls the RM hair calls this a blick, uh, which is just a made up word. It's not based on anything. And it, it just means like th- what it reminds me of are like the kind of bubbles that we see on Twitter um, of different groups of people. So you try to like tell them, you know, like uh, climate change is real. And they're like, it doesn't matter what you tell me. Uh, I'll never believe that climate change or flat earthers or stuff like that. Um, and so it has nothing to do with like being religious necessarily. It's like a way of thinking. I agree with you there, but a lot of those er, examples you just came up with, a lot of those people are usually really religious. I think, and so I think maybe it's just that they get that way of thinking. Yeah. I think Blick is a way of thinking that appeals to fundamentalist kind of religiosity. Or maybe There's, just that they were brought up thinking that way about religion, so they're susceptible. I don't if that's I don't know if that's the right word to thinking that way about anything else. There's mm. actually a a really interesting blog post by uh my favorite feminist ex fundagelical blogger about how um like flat earthism is actually a really big problem in certain evangelical circles now. And to the point where, like, churches are having to give sermons on the earth is round, like, don't believe flat earth, blah, blah, blah. Um, Like, here is why, uh, you know, like, flat earth is, like, not good theology or whatever. And she makes the whole point that it's like, okay, well, you've, like, taught a whole group of people to believe, like, a very specific thing about how science works and basically work to undermine their belief their fundamental belief in science and now you're like confused about why they're following even more bullshit random non-science you know because like these are all people who totally believe in young earth creationism and they're like no no okay so like ignore everything science has to say about like evolution and geologic time but it's totally round guys like (laughs) (laughs) It like becomes very hard to uh, to to uh, enforce an orthodoxy that is so random with regard to what it accepts and rejects about scientific knowledge. Yeah, because what it is accepting and rejecting is kind of like what I was saying about Mrs. Coulter or like the magisterium, I guess, because Mrs. Coulter's position is cynical. Like the magisterium has decided that dust is bad in the same way that like evolution is bad uh, vis-a-vis Christianity. Right. Uh, and so like that encourages a blickish way of thinking exactly the way that you're saying. And like, you, you can easily like add on to that ontology of like the, the earth is 6,000 years old and it's flat. And it's like, whoa, 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 hold on. Because like, what's more important here is not the evidence. It's that it's that idea that you have. And then the evidence doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that's the that's the blickish way of thinking. And what, you know, neither a priori or a posteriori knowledge operate that way. Like it, with neither of those, does the knowledge come first? Like the not, you know, the knowledge is comes out of the information. The information comes first, whether it's a phenomenon or whether it's like, you know, math. Yeah. Whatever, whatever it is, the information comes first and then the knowledge comes out of it. But in this case, 
it's the story comes first and then you need to like pick and choose your facts to correspond with the information that you came in with. Yeah. And that's actually one of the things that I really wanted to talk about from reading these chapters was like, why? Like, what is the metaphor that you think Pullman is going for with dust and declaring it evil and bad? Um, But I don't know if there's anything else you want to finish up in this section Mm -mm, before we go there. No, it's a good transition. Okay. So are you asking us that question or did you want to talk about it? Um, Well, I would like for you to talk about it, but also I pulled some things to kind of... So I... It's hard for me to talk about this just because I have good knowledge of the ending of the books. Mm -hmm. But I will say at this point in the story, what it seems like Mrs. Coulter and the Magisterium are telling us is that they think dust has something to do with original sin. Yeah, that's kind of what I was picking up, right? Because dust is associated with puberty, which is like associated with physical development and sex. And just even... Even putting aside that, it, the the nurse with the that had her demon with her but was severed, she has no curiosity. She she doesn't want knowledge to go with right. like a you know she doesn't ask when Lyra's lying to her about where she came from. She's just like, oh, that's nice, you know, and all the like. She doesn't care about anything. Mm-hmm. She just takes things as she doesn't question things. So and, yeah. And so Adam and Eve like, got kicked out for the tree of knowledge. Like their exactly. pursuit of knowledge is what caused original sin. Yeah, I plan to talk about original sin in the next episode. Uh, <laughs> so like if people don't know what, what original sin means, like, I guess, I don't know if you want me to I talk guess, about that I guess now. we can wait on it. I don't know. No, yeah. it's okay. No, I, something I think, that, I sorry yeah, to interrupt. It's something that I think we can talk about more than once because it does come up and the idea of what dust is changes throughout the series so i think it's good to bring it up more than once yeah i the language that pullman used just like reminded me of a lot of the like like body and sex shaming stuff that comes from religion where it's like you're just shaming people for doing what comes naturally to them it's like trying to force people um to like be in a way that's actually like antithetical to their natural state of being when you say religion like what are you saying oh well i mean christianity okay thank Thank you you. (laughs) yeah yeah very specifically christianity or certain forms of christianity so It's, it's interesting though right because they're doing this to lots of people like ultimately is mrs coulter's goal to like sever her and her demon does she want to get rid of her sense of curiosity doesn't Um, seem like it yeah like it's the whole plan seems flawed in some way theologically if like like the people who have put themselves in power are hypocrites (laughs) <laughs> what? And they want everyone that else to follow. Right. Yeah, they want everyone else to follow one set of rules while they follow a completely different set of rules. That doesn't sound mm-hmm. real to me. <laughs> um, I just I pulled some quotes to talk about. She says, um, 
Uh, your demon's a wonderful friend and companion when you're young, but at the age we call puberty, the age you're coming to very soon, darling, demons bring all sorts of troublesome thoughts and feelings, and that's what lets dust in. You know, like, it's to me, that feels, like, very sexually charged. And I guess, like, knowledge of oh, it is. nakedness yeah. and everything is, like, very much a part of original sin. Um, and that's that happens in mm-hmm. this chapter when Nurse makes... Uh, uh, Lyra get in the shower and Lyra feels ashamed to be forced to be naked in front of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the touching of the demon is like, it feels like very like, like a, like a violation. Know, yeah. Like mm-hmm. a bad touch. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and there's that whole thing about, um, Tony Macarius was in the closet with the girl. Like she was embarrassed to say that in front of the other kids. But then nobody even like picked up on what she was talking about. Or if she was even implying that they were, I don't know, making out, whatever. Just that they, the other kids would make fun of her as if they were. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean they were having sex or something, but that something could have been going on, you know, that they were making out or something like that. But, you know, you're at that age when even just being alone with a boy, Mm -hmm. everybody would make fun of you, even if you were just chatting. Right. Yeah, I definitely got the feeling there was like at least some heavy flirting happening. Yeah. Oh, and he's dead now. Yeah. <laughs> so sad. Um, but yeah, so it, do well, you- sorry, and well, and then later on, Lyris, you know, says something like, "Well, if Lord Asriel has dust, and you've got dust, and the Master of Jordan, and every other grown-up's got dust. It must be all right." Which I feel like is the kind of you know obvious counterpoint to that argument so i mean yeah i do think that that he's like very intentionally invoking these these uh like common arguments for for how christianity is trying to like restrict sexuality in people i i agree but it might also what am i trying to say nope i got nothing carry on (laughs) you're like (laughs) how can i say this without revealing Spoilers. No, it's not even that. I just don't even really know what I'm thinking. Just we're talking a lot, I guess, about physical things. Mm-hmm. But I think the church even wants to stop like thoughts and yeah. feelings, you know, and, and not necessarily sexual ones, but even just affection and and curiosity, like we said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but what is the end game, right? Because like, if people are just like servant automatons, right? Like. What's the point of having a bunch of servants if you don't have somebody with more thoughtful and bigger ambitions directing them? Well, so Mrs. Coulter is obviously not traditionally Christian or whatever. She just likes, she likes watching it. You know, like they say that. She just likes doing evil shit. She's just actually a sadist. Yeah. But I think possibly some of the people monetarily backing her are probably genuinely thinking they want to make people right or good or whatever in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. You know, that if they genuinely believe that making it to heaven is the best thing and that this is a way that you can guarantee getting to heaven, a little bit of child torture seems cool. Right. And so maybe some of them, sorry, maybe some of them right. don't want power or to rule. They genuinely just want people to go to heaven. And this whole thing is like, what Mrs. Coulter is describing is not necessarily like what she believes, but is what the magisterium believes, which is not necessarily, like I said earlier, based on like the evidence. They're not necessarily like 
observing things and then drawing conclusions from those observations, they have a preconceived notion of what goodness is, which is associated with, you know, the Bible. And, and obedience then, and in obedience, right. And remember in another episode when I was talking about predestination and the way that Calvin saw ontology or uh teleology, that like the point of everything is to glorify God, not to like the point of the earth is not to serve humans. It's to, to serve the glory of God. And you were like, who would ever believe in that? But like basically the magisterium's plan here to sever everyone's demons from them and to like cool down their curiosity and affection and love for each other would achieve this kind of like robotic predestination where, you know, people are obedient and do their roles. And, and like serve their place. While we're here, I just wanted to mention, uh, I brought it up briefly in the summaries, but that bit where they talk about how stressful it was for the adults performing the intercision, oh, that made me so angry. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you poor adults. Like, fuck you so much. Ugh. Ugh. Sorry, carry on. It's kind of like those um, experiments that were carried out after World War II to... Um, to see if people could be brought to torture each other, which was like alarmingly possible and, and easy to do. You know what I'm talking about? These, um, I can't remember the name of the trials, but they were like, you would give an electric shock to somebody every time that they broke the rules and it would like intensify each time. And you were told by an authority figure in the room, like shock them again shock them again. And the person in the other room is not actually getting shocked, but they are acting as if the electrocution is getting worse and worse. And the person, you know, these were not like they were trying to figure out how did the Nazis happen? And the right. Yes, yes, yes. And the yeah. people were pushing the buttons were just regular people. And they just kept pushing that button. Well, and they even told the people, you know, like eight volts is considered safe. Or whatever, right. and then by the end of the experiment, got them to go beyond the safe levels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're like not comfortable doing this to kids. That like reminds me of that, and it's you know, like you said, at the same time, it's gross. You'd be like, well, if you're not comfortable, that would be your conscience, like maybe saying stop it. <laughs> but why aren't you stopping it? Yeah, this whole thing, also this whole cutting thing, also reminds me of like circumcision. You know, speaking of like sexuality and like um, you know stunting that and stuff, and like religious stuff to do with that, and that's like a, a passage into manhood. Um, literally, like you know, the circumcision is like part of becoming a man, and part of isn't the the circumcision happen in infancy? Well, it can, uh, or if you convert, um. It would be, you know, a ritual that would need to be performed for you to fully convert. Uh, and so, you know, it's part of becoming Jewish uh, or, or like joining that faith. And so like this, I think it started out as a literal and there's all kinds of this in, in world cultures and religions, uh, a kind of religious ceremony where you become an adult by going through a kind of painful crucible that might have to do with the mutilation of a body part or something like that, which this very much reminded me of. There's like stuff that there there's like really good evidence that some of like the oldest religions on earth were like worshiping these bones in like different caves all over the world. There's like these caves are like in Japan and in France and in Africa 
all around the same time, like pre-agricultural societies that have like bear skulls in them and stuff. And like to get into the chamber where the bear skull is, you have to push through these cracks, which are kind of too narrow for adults to get through, but just big enough that like a 12 year old or 11 year old could get through. And the idea, like based on a good amount of evidence seems to be that like you would give this person like some kind of like maybe mushroom or something like that. So they're having like a psychedelic effect and they're kind of like born through the crack, like reborn. And then they go through some kind of ritual in front of the idol and like confront their God and then come out as an adult. And like Lyra, like going through the ceiling and like coming out of this, like she's squeezing through there and then like coming out and then like getting put in the severing machine. I was like, Oh, all of this like feels very much like that to me. Cause that's what Mrs. Coulter tells her. She's like, this will help you be a grown up." And so this just all feels connected to me. Like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's been a long time since I've played the skeptic to your, uh, like metaphorical interpretations but no i like i like what you're doing i'm not sure if i buy it but i like it at the very least it's showing that cultures all over the world have this thing about puberty Mm -hmm. you know like that they realize that it's that that intrinsically humans change and that's something that for a really long time we thought it was something not physical you know like not like a physical part of us changing but that it was something outside changing us something Mm -hmm. to do with a god or the god or what have you Mm -hmm. so that we became something different almost and and it's it's throughout all of these cultures yeah the magisterium's just as scared of it as anybody else or just as intrigued by it Mm -hmm. yeah they want to control it at any rate so it's something about dust I don't know. When I was reading this section, I felt like I'm definitely seeing more of like the explicit critique of religion now than I did when I was reading this as like a kid in or preteen. But the critique feels like very European um, and like not very North American, just because I feel like the ways that like Christianity tends to be super fucked up here are kind of different. Like I. I don't know. I feel like if Pullman was an uh, American writer, he would have uh, critiqued it in ways that were like more relevant to evangelical Protestantism and less relevant to like Catholicism, maybe. Oh, I mean, well, this all started because Pullman went to a Catholic school. I see. Okay. Hated Catholicism. So this is directly pointed at Catholicism as a governing body. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. That you makes are, a lot you of are sense. correct in feeling that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess I just like don't personally know that much about Catholicism compared to uh, other forms of Christianity. Uh, and then also remember, in this world, like America doesn't exist, so that whole culture, yeah, that's not a thing in, in this world that he's created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because evangelical Christianity is like you know Reformed Christianity, so. It- comes out of Lutheranism and Calvin and all of that stuff. Even if it doesn't believe those things, it like has to deal with them and like react to them. But yeah, this yeah, is all well, I mean, he really Catholic. Ju- he would have just come up with different world building. But. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree that it would just, it would be a different version of this and you could talk about different things and maybe the show will do that. Maybe it will be a little bit um, more universal or like less targeted at Catholicism and, like that would all be 
pretty interesting if they tried to do something like that. I mean, I think it might be less targeted at Catholicism, but it is an English show. Like a lot of people are thinking of it as an HBO show. Mm-hmm. They came in after production finished, right? So it is written and uh, produced by English people. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I still think it's mostly going to be from that point of view, which is different than ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Then I just had one more question, which was about the spy bot fly thing, mm-hmm. which is that, so when we first encounter it earlier in the book, doesn't mm-hmm. Farter Quorum says something about how like it will never mm-hmm. stop hunting Lyra mm-hmm. down, mm-hmm. but then yeah, she this just- is a big let- stupid plot hole. Cause then she just lets it go and it attacks Mrs. Coulter, not her. And then she runs away and it doesn't pursue her any further. Yep. Okay. Let's talk about mitochondrial DNA. I learned this from <laughs> Star Trek Discovery. Uh, this is a, a, the bullshit way to get out of a plot hole. Um, 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 Let's uh, no, not. I got nothing. It's not. It <laughs> okay. didn't work then either. I'm just like, I'm so surprised because... That is not usually how I watch stories. Like, I'm never the person who comes with plot holes. I'm the person who's just like, "Uh uh-huh, 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 totally. And then afterwards, other people (laughs) point out plot holes, and I'm like, oh, you're right. But no, (laughs) this time I was just like, hmm, hmm, hmm. The one thing I could maybe say, like, I absolutely think this is piss poor writing here. But the one thing I could maybe say in its defense is that the things were, I believe, supposed to find Lyra and then report back to Mrs. Coulter. Oh, so it's possible because like one saw her and then left. Right. That's true. So it's possible that it was reporting back. Like I was here. (laughs) In her her. face. Yeah. (laughs) I'm back. But like they had that whole bit with Farter Quorum trying to make it sound scary as shit about how it would always chase her and blah, 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 blah. And then it's just gone. It's just fine. Mm hmm. Which is funny because he's so good most of the time about putting things in and then calling back to them later and having them match up perfectly. Yeah. And this instance is just the one where it's like the foreshadowing doesn't work. Agreed. Yeah. And he went to a lot of trouble to like set up that trap in the previous because you don't know why she's doing all that stuff, but Mm -hmm. it's because of this. Yeah, everything else about it was really well done, but just mm-hmm. the fact of how it works was like, wait, what? And it could have, you know, like it could have made things worse. Like, and that would have might have been interesting where it would have been like, or that could have been like how Mrs. Coulter tracked her down right before the balloon got her or something like that. Like, you could have still done it and had it work. You know what I mean? Like, you could have tried to have the thing like she opens it. Oh, man, she got hit in the face. I'm going to get away. And now that thing is chasing her and showing them exactly where she is. And she can't get away from it. And it's leading them to her. Yeah. And maybe. OK, but like York is really good with metals. So maybe he can. I don't know. Yeah. Crush it or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, get, I was going to say if he'd had it chase her, he would have had to deal with it then. Right. Yeah. 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 But- yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, in terms of plot, like, it it could have, you, you make a plan and then the plan goes wrong and it makes things more interesting. But yeah, yeah you do have to solve the problem eventually. <laughs> but then the eagles come and it's all better. Isn't that how that works? Yes. Yes, the yeah. eagles come and save her. Yeah. yeah. I understood that reference. <laughs> I actually don't like when people do that and I did it myself. I was going to be real shit and be like, actually, you don't understand that reference. Trust me. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's even worse than you think it is. So next time we'll be talking about chapters 18 to 21. If you enjoy the show, you can leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your email to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And remember, Lord Asriel may be your father, but Mrs. Coulter is never your mother. Austin, Texas, young producers for Earth and Sky, Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights, Aurora Australis, the Southern Lights, are beautiful displays seen in the nighttime sky. Auroras are a curtain-like luminosity extending from east to west. Auroras occur in the upper atmosphere of both poles and are occasionally visible from the middle latitudes as a dark red glow. More structured ones can change rapidly enough to create the impression of motion. The solar wind is a stream of charged particles leaving the sun. Auroras occur when solar wind is captured by the Earth's magnetic field and redirected to the Earth's poles. Where the wind collides with the atmosphere, it produces the aurora's familiar green oxygen-based light and crimson nitrogen-based light. Auroras change with the seasons, the 11-year sunspot cycle, and the solar day, which is 27 Earth days long. They are best seen in March, April, September, and October of peak years in the sunspot cycle. Oh, shit. Um... Oh, fuck. Uh, I didn't even think. Uh, uh, and uh, if you oh, go Blick, it. please come back. No. Mm, that's oh, that's what charged. you're shitting about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Okay, okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. Um, uh, <laughs> fuck, no, I don't. I can't think of a way to make that funny. Okay. Um, and remember to... No, that's bad. Okay, just give me one second. I'm just, we can all just think about it for a while. And remember to not get in the mesh cage. No, I don't like that. And remember to tell everyone your name is Lizzie. (laughs) I'm just going to do like five and maybe one will be funny. Something about having the best pet in the world. Two hats for life. (laughs) Jesus, what, what even happened in these chapters? And remember, everybody needs a magic goose friend.
Maybe I just really want one. <laughs> These all suck. Uh, and remember, <laughs> Lord Azrael may be your father, but Mrs. Coulter is never your mother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, that's the best one. Is it? I don't know. I'm gonna. Do you mind if I do it? Just. Oh yeah. Okay, okay, okay. 